TBA 21 Academy Radio. You are listening to Magical Fresh and Salty Conversations, TBA 21 Academy's podcast series exploring ecological and magical perspectives on bodies of water. This series of conversations reflects on the anthropogenic transformations of marine ecosystems, leaning on the innovative trajectories of science, technology, and art. Through performance, expeditions, sound, film, and image making, the contributing artists engage with the underwater world in encounters with scientists and thinkers, proposing a world reimagined from within the waters. Whether in the fictional, scientific, or science fictional realm, an interspecies future lies ahead of us. More than human underwater filming. This episode of Magical, Fresh, and Salty Conversations features the artist and starts resident Sonia Levy in conversation with Erica Balsam, a London based scholar and critic working on cinema, art, and their intersection. During their starts residency, Sonia Levy and her collaborators, environmental anthropologist Heather Swanson, ecologist Meredith Root Bernstein, and landscape architect Alexandra Aren, looked at the Venetian lagoon through the lens of nature-based solutions to mitigate flood risks. What issues arise from Venice's long history of taming its waterscape? With a shared commitment to noticing more than human worlds, the group strive to forge their own understanding of the controversies arising from the lagoon's water management. In Sonia's eyes, lagoons are fascinating places to think about the meeting of different bodies of water, fresh and salt water. Filming underwater became a way to get to know the ephemeral world of the lagoon and its processes of transformation in the hope that this submerged perspective might also bring about speculative approaches to policy change. Our project stems from a commission by the Starts for Water program, asking artists to respond to situated issues around water management at various sites in Europe. We were affiliated with TBA 21 Academy and Ocean Space, and we were asked to look at the Venetian Lagoon through the lens of nature-based solutions to mitigate flood risks. We understood nature-based solutions as the regeneration of biogeomorphological processes through the re-implanting of lost ecological features. I spent four months in Venice as an initial entry point into the lagoon. Together with my collaborators, the environmental anthropologist Heather Swanson, the ecologist Meredith Ruth Bernstein, and the landscape architect Alexandra Aren, who joined me at various times. Together we shared this desire to forge our own understanding of the controversies that arise from the management of the lagoon. 
We also shared a commitment to noticing modern human worlds, moving away from thinking about world-making practices exclusively in human terms. The Venetian Lagoon is a compelling site to consider Western waterscape changes and the socio-ecological damages they also often entailed. In the case of Venice, of particular interest to me is the relationship between the strong military and imperial legacies of the city and the ways it has governed and transformed its watery spaces. I'm inspired here by the work of many contemporary thinkers and practitioners like Dilip Dacuna or Ivor Duncan, for example, who have traced the relationship between colonial, military or political violences and their connection with ways of representing, governing or instrumentalizing hydrology. The lagoon has been a central part of the functioning and establishment of Venice. It has a long, well-recorded and well-researched history of its management and its geomorphological re-engineering how it has been changed and governed according to different needs and regimes. To name a few examples, it was managed as a military defense system of the Republic of Venice. It was actively manipulated by diverting rivers to be kept at a low depth, making it difficult for boats of certain sizes to reach its shore. During Mussolini's increased industrialization of the region, Fresh water was pumped from the aquifer beneath the lagoon to cool down industrial operations, which led to land subsidence and the current sinking of Venice. It was later dredged for the making of deep channels for container ships, for commercial transnational exchanges with the industrial zone of Porto Marghera on the mainland. Stronger currents were created inside these new channels, which in turn also augmented sediment loss pushing the sediment outside of the lagoon and furthering the sinking of the city. Most recently, the building of the flood defense system Mose, a series of mobile buyers installed at the inlets of the lagoon, which, amongst others, are changing the vital interaction between the lagoon and the sea, are also exacerbating currents and erosion. This transformation, which had intricate and detrimental effect on the lagoon and the city of Venice, are also today coupled with globalized issues like rising sea level, higher temperatures, pollution, eutrophication or invasive species, to name a few, increasing the fragility of an already sensitive and reactive space. Beyond these difficult questions of life ongoingness, lagoons, I think, are fascinating places to think about the meeting of bodies of water fresh and salty water, they are life-giving because of their turbulent and heterogeneous nature, which makes them stimulating places from which to observe the animating and vital abilities of Gaia, contradicting the physicist modernist conception of nature and water as mechanic and governable. Throughout our times on the ground and encounters with local marine scientists, fishermen and NGOs, we also got to follow restoration projects that engage with nature-based solutions. We started to wonder how we could intervene in a place like Venice, which seemed already very much overloaded with scientific studies, with artistic and environmental interventions. It seems that there wasn't a lack of awareness for the fate of Venice and its lagoon, nor a lack of solutions, but maybe a lack of coordination and transparency, and as it's already known, a lot of corruption. 
Because of this lack of a coordinated baseline for monitoring the lagoon, the restoration project and scientific endeavors seemed very fragmented and competing with one another. This also made it difficult for us to understand what was happening with the lagoon. It got me to think about the representational challenges in a place like Venice, a question that was heightened by my conversation with my collaborator Heather Swanson, prompted by our visit to the city and its museums. We started to wonder about the ways the city is narrated through these grand histories of venture for world domination, by trade and wars, questioning how these stories promoting approaches to world-making grounded in expansion, in warfare and accumulation, might influence the way Venice and Stagoon are enacted today. With these questions in mind and the lack of a clear understanding of the ecological issues and the fragmentation and heterogeneity of the place, I started filming underwater, turning to the lagoon's muddy and quotidian subsurface world. Filming underwater became a way to get to know the fragile and ephemeral world of the lagoon, as well as its world-making abilities. What are the life-giving biogeomorphological processes present? Which ones have been altered and why? I have another period in Venice coming up with additional underwater filming, where I will also be conducting further archival research, tracing some of the historical modifications of the lagoon. I'm also hoping to conduct further interviews, notably with fishermen, to understand the lagoon changes from their perspective. My colleague, the architect Alexandra Aran, has been working on an alternative cartographic system, which also discloses some of the subsurface of Venice. She focused on sediment movement and sediment loss in the lagoon. The ecologist Meredith Ruth Bernstein has made a proposal against this lack of a clear and cohesive understanding of the lagoon changes by attempting to start a database of fixed-point photography. The idea is to take photographs of the same point over an extended period of time to reveal how the habitat has been changing. Through these propositions, which we hope are contextualized view from inside the land and waterscapes of the lagoon, we wish to bring speculative approaches to policy change. Perhaps it's not quite certain yet, but it sounds like the outcome of this project will ultimately be a film and maybe a film combining different strategies when you speak about interviews or archival research. But looking at the footage in progress, it really struck me that part of what was central to your interest in this submerged perspective was um, an investment in observation. And I read one of your texts in which you discuss the idea of filmmaking as a form of bearing witness to a critical chain of interdependence. And so I was wondering for you, what's at stake in observation um, as a method? It's one I think that has been much criticized in the history of documentary. The observational mode of filmmaking is sometimes criticized for pretending to objectivity or being allied in some sense with kind of non-interventionist scientism. But at the same time, it's actually been something very much embraced by, I think, many artists um, in the last 10 years or so. And so I was wondering if you could speak 
about the importance of observation for your practice and perhaps thinking forward to the finished film, how observation will sit in relation to these other kinds of strategies that you mentioned, like incorporating archival research or, or interviews with fishermen. I see my films as something other than attempts at neutral observations, but rather uh, to show how uh, forms of observations are imbued with IDs. In that sense, I'm interested in rethinking the relationship between reality and aesthetic, to think about the ways IDs which are embodied in forms of observation and representation also have material effects on the world. And I'm interested in moving images potential to navigate these different modalities in order to make them apparent. So the scientific, the fictional, the more than human worldings, for example. This is my approach to staying with the troubles of the observational mode uh, through this practice of uh, vibrating between realities, uh, which is a term that was coined by the anthropologist Lene Maritosin. And it's also a way of situating myself within the legacy of these observational practices. In that sense, I usually need to operate the camera myself and spend uh, time listening to the environment I film. I like to be able to spend extensive periods observing and listening. It's not because of some uh, romantic ideas, but really pragmatic ones. I try to observe with the use of the camera. Uh, I try to listen with the practice of sound recording. These become for me modes of investigating, but also they become reflexive processes. They make me aware of the diversities of ways of life and of temporalities that are populating the world, and it allows me to situate myself within them, um, historically and physically. Yeah, they allow me to engage with the world in, in an embodied way. And of course, I don't deny that they are mediated, enhanced practices of vision and of listening that emerge from troubled histories, but I want to reclaim them in a way that allows me to enter in relation with the world and its materialities. So you've said that um, your project is interested in approaching the lagoon from below. And this immediately made me think of the idea of history from below, which is a form of historiography that is generally interested in thinking about the past from the perspectives and experiences of regular people, everyday people, rather than um, narrating historical events from the perspective of those in power. And um, one of the most celebrated works of history from below is actually one that also deals with the sea. And this is Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker's uh, The Many-Headed Hydra, The Hidden History of the Revolutionary Atlantic. Um, and so you invoke this idea of the perspective from below, but I feel that there are significant differences in your understanding of this perspective from below and the idea of history from below. And one of those significant differences would be um, the place of the human 
So you move away perhaps from the human as central. Um, and also we have the idea of from below as involving a literal from below, meaning submersion in water. And so I wonder if you could speak to this idea of the from below and if or how you see any connections with the idea of history from below. Our positioning from below is a reaction against Venice, as I was explaining a bit earlier, as a city that is filled with grand narrative of wealth, of imperial power and of naval advancements, which we experienced during our stay and visit to local museums. And Throughout this residency, we were often told that the lagoon as this lively place is invisibilized in urban Venice and its space crowded with grand history and burdened by tourism. So starting from below also came from thinking about the representation of the Venetian lagoon itself in this historical context of urban development, of rule and defense. And these historical maps of the Venetian lagoon, typically they show a view from above and the lagoon as this flat surface, which encircle and protect the city. So I was struck by how most of these representations, they operate as a demonstration of Venice's power. They show both a quest for control over the lagoon to oversee who goes in and out, but they also manifest the city's hegemonies over uh, its vast sea trading empire. In most of these representations, the lagoon is, operates really as the space uh, subjected to land and subjected to this project of expansion and, and economic power. So our from below attempt to challenge this, to examine the lagoon through its depth rather than as a surface. And we also uh, seek to understand the lagoon depth by learning from the scientists who study this very fractured and very damaged wetlands, as well as the fishermen that uses and navigate its porosity and its multiplicity daily. We follow in the footsteps of historians like Redeker and Linnebau, telling this hidden histories, but this time it's invisible histories below the water um, in order to reposition the lagoon and its materiality that drove the development of the city. And in the tradition of history from below, we want to question who make history, whose story are we talking about, to include more than human world this time. For example, if one of the points of history from below is to focus on the people who made the great men possible rather than the great men themselves, we want to extend this understanding to encompass the world-building, life-giving abilities of modern human worlds. And also importantly, we are inspired by anthropologist Anat Singh approaches in Feral Atlas to study the ways uh, modern human worlds have also accompanied projects of conquest and industrialization and how this has led to also dangerous ecological transformation. So what happened when we don't account for interdependencies? We also share with Radiker and Lillenbau a move towards encompassing a much broader frame of analysis beyond the nation state to reveal uh, international movements. And by submerging below the waves, we don't escape history. On, on the contrary, 
its materiality and ecologically reveal how global histories have shaped the pathways of our world. I'm also interested in thinking about the submarine and wetland ecologies in the Black radical traditions as fugitive spaces, sites of history otherwise. Thinking again of this submerged view, it seems to me that underwater cinematography is very, very much aligned with histories of scientific inquiry, but also with marvel and with wonder. And it struck me that in your underwater filming, you're very interested in the kind of transformative capacities of the close-up and of the kind of magnification that can happen through filming underwater. And I was reminded here of how Jean Panlevé associated his filmmaking with a subversion of reason, even though it was anchored in science. So he writes, for instance, does the complete understanding of a natural phenomenon strip away its miraculous qualities? It is certainly a risk, but it should at least maintain all of its poetry, for poetry subverts reason and is never dulled by repetition. Besides, a few gaps in our knowledge will always allow for a joyous confusion of the mysterious, the unknown, and the miraculous. And so I wonder, alongside this interest in investigating the transformations of the lagoon, sometimes in very destructive ways, where is the place for the miraculous and the wondrous, or is there a place for this in your practice? I have a sense that there is. Yeah, thank you for bringing Jean-Paul Levé and Geneviève Amon as well here to the conversation because their film really indeed played uh, an essential role in my approaches to art and filmmaking, especially because I, I studied art at a time when it was taught in a very kind of insular and discipline-bounded way. And encountering Pallevé and Amon's work was really, for me, a, a breath of fresh air. They taught me that art could contribute to knowledge and be a way of uh, seeking to know the world outside the bounds of the discipline of modern and contemporary art. So that really that art can intervene at the crossroad of different types of knowledges. He also taught me this importance also of being really uh, factually correct. Yeah, I wonder how like how their work really kind of situate themselves um, at a time where this discovery of the heuristic and the pedagogical and scientific uh, qualities of cinema. But we can see how very quickly they saw this medium potential to move beyond science uh, modality uh, towards this ability to capture, as you said, wonder and enchantment. So this is a little bit of a provocation, but I've been wondering if magnification in, in Panlevé's work couldn't be considered more of an abstraction. So in the sense that it's often a, a gesture of removal, one is confronted with beauty and the composition in, in the texture from the skin of a marine creature or in, in the shape of a living being or confronted with grace or strangeness of a movement. 
but these close-up, uh, they almost always operate in comparison with human creations. And these human creations are posited as reference and of this kind of superior nature. But of course, here, I also acknowledge that this, his work, of course, like exceeds that project. And so that got me think about how historically Panlevé's work really situated itself at that moment of uh, still like a conquest for scientific discovery, where nature felt uh, unlimited and really the scientist's task was to make sense of it. There is no feeling of emergency or uncertainties in the same ways we are um, encountering today. I remember watching actually also a documentary about his work and learning that more towards the end of his career, he did also question his approaches and that he was apologizing, or at least, yeah, really questioning himself about taking, fishing and killing so many sea creatures to making his films. And I thought that was really interesting to hear it. And in that sense, I think that for me, magnification, they become more attempts at recontextualizing. They are sort of voyages inwards in um, inside Gaia into interdependencies into the multiplicity of the world, of multiplicity of temporality uh, that constitute the fibers of our world. And yeah, there is a, a recursive nature that I try to bring to this magnification, how industrial impacts are present inside oceanic spaces, inside the bodies of non-human. We are confronted with the vulnerabilities and the altered and damaged states of the world. So your question about wonder, one thing I've been thinking about is this current fragility of our time, uh, how that is also revealing the world in a new light, sort of rediscovery of agency and, uh, and of dependencies. Panave was right in saying that poetry subverts reason in the sense that it shows the limit of rationalities to our ways of understanding and being in relationship with the world. I think the gaps of knowledge he talks about also demonstrate uh, the scientific mode and its kind of disciplinary circumscriptions. I would love to think that my work operates um, in these gaps in the interstices between modernist categories. wanted to ask what kind of representational challenges you feel you face as an artist when trying to picture processes that can be extremely slow or kind of below the threshold of vision, like say climate change or like kind of the slow violence of environmental degradation. And maybe magnification, you know, is one answer to this. This is one of the strategies that you're turning to in order to meet these representational challenges. But I would be interested to hear you say um, a little more 
about this question, I always go back to this section in um, The Great Displacement, where Amitav Ghosh says that the novel is not very well equipped to confront climate change because the temporality of the novel is so bound to human time and to individual human lives. We could say the same thing about narrative cinema, but I was always very struck in The Great Displacement that he doesn't talk about other kinds of forms of moving image practice. And your work tends not to be narrative in the conventional sense of that term. You're thinking about other structures, other temporalities. And so I wonder for you what representational strategies or what formal strategies uh, you see as being at your disposal to confront these other than human worlds, which sometimes really challenge our own sense of a kind of human bound time. Moving image and sound in the context of uh, my practice are both potent instrument for investigating, but also used as a medium capable of uh, enlivening uh, things and beings to engage with the inherent animacy of matter. And I'm particularly interested in cinema's power to animate the world, its ability to assign subjectivity to non-human and to as well multiply perspectives. So I think I'll go back to Pinlevé and Amon here to also notice how from its early days, cinema seems to have been a really interesting place to think about life and that it was developed in parallel to the evolution of biological ideas. So it really seems to me that cinema, of course, amongst other things, is a really interesting place to experience life, uh, vitalism. And the question then is like, what does it mean to portray life today at a time of extinction when it seems that life ongoingness is at stake? And to follow your lead on Amitav Ghosh, he also mentions that how in the novel, environments are often only inner backdrop for human stories. There is this sort of inability to register non-human as actant, as uh, movers of history in these Western conventional storytelling practices. And I wonder how also that explains our numbing when it comes to impacts on environment and, of course, the self-destruction that this entails. So, yeah, I think montage uh, is also a cinematic language that is really interesting to convey non-linearity of time, to make apparent different scales and to work against this imposition of a one world of modernity. It's, this, it's a very kind of sensual language of forms, of signs, of movement, of sounds, of course, capable of conveying new approaches to liveliness. And what I think is interesting is they can also be felt within the spectator's body. And to go back to uh, your question about the stages uh, of narrative for me, the type of, of narrative uh, I try to conjure up in my films are uh, forms that allow room for the world to speak 
or to, to put it otherwise, to leave um, a sort of leeway for the diversity and animacy of the world to emerge and reveal itself. So it's a bit like Eduardo Cohn uh, in How Forest Thinks, to think and to demonstrate how the world and how non-human entities think that they exchange signs and meanings. And here we could think again about how these widespread approaches to storytelling, like Amitav Ghosh discusses, that focuses on individual human agencies have dulled our abilities to register the world vibrancy. The other thing that I would like to mention as an artist working with moving images and in this question of formal possibility uh, is the potential films in exhibition contexts. I think that moving images installations have really exciting potential for non-linearity, for multiplicity, working with multiple screen, multiple sound swords, and also how they are very different experiences than a theater room. They do feel to me like less passive engagements with the filmic form and really interesting spaces to rethink stories and narrative. Because also in film installation, this usual uh, demarcated terrain of the observer can be tempered. The spectator can then locate themselves within the image, within the sound. And that also allows for a stronger embodiment to be more physically present with the world. You've mentioned your interest in interdependency uh, quite a few times when thinking about the relationship between human and more than human worlds. But it strikes me that interdependency is also uh, an important part of how you work, because you've mentioned the importance of collaboration to you, both with individuals coming from other disciplinary backgrounds, but also uh, sometimes working with institutions, not just in this Venice project, but also in, in other projects that you've done in the past. And so I wonder if you can speak to uh, your interest in collaboration, maybe the challenges of collaboration, uh, but why it remains such an important part of your practice. Yeah, collaboration, it comes from a desire to really anchor my work in the space of the world rather than in the field, rather than the space of the studio. And also to move away from this image of the the lone a genius male artist to the importance of really thinking and working together with others. And collaboration for me is also interdisciplinarity. And that also emerged from an ethical positioning to creating more encompassing methods to understanding, but also to representing the world complexities. It's about combining different kinds of noticing to build more comprehensive insights. Or again, as I now said many times, but how acknowledging that the world is made of uh, many worlds and need many approaches to be understood. And also I think that art is very good at situating uh, itself in this kind of critical spaces 
which exists between disciplines, between epistemic forms, and develop critical approaches to complexifying uh, stories, kind of in the spirits of Donna Haraway. One other thing that is really important for me in working in this interdisciplinary way is that I also love to be surrounded by people who know differently than I do and to be really challenged by their knowledge. I like to think that it doesn't only shift my perspective, uh, but it really kind of transformed the world itself. And it's this curiosity and this fascination and a wish to, to really share this experience through my films that, that drove uh, most of my work. Magical, Fresh, and Salty Conversations is produced by TBA 21 Academy with the support of STARTS, an initiative by the European Commission. Before we conclude this chapter, we'd like to correct a small slip of the tongue. The novel Erica Balsam refers to is entitled The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh, published in 2016. Special thanks to our hosts and guests, Erica Balsam and Sonia Levy. Editor-at-large, Maria Montero Sierra. Editing and sound design, Elena Caesar. Voiceover, Nathan Johnson. Music by Horizon Sound and underwater sound recordings of the Venetian Lagoon by Sonia Levy and Jez Riley French. Produced by Miriam Calabresa, Maria Montero Sierra, Katerina Rakuszczyk, and the artists. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org or subscribe with your podcast provider.